Well, good morning again. I'm Rob, and I love our church. I love that God actually invites us into this restoration with him and then invites us to be involved with each other and invites us to bring hope to the world because people need it. I was looking this week. It was not hard to look uh, at some of the stories that come through in our everyday week, and uh, I truly just wonder why we're not more shocked by stories like Harvey Weinstein. Uh, If you haven't heard, he's this Hollywood mogul that has shaped popular culture for decades. He has six best-time Oscar-winning pictures. He has uh, numerous humanitarian awards, and he's in public showcased himself as this champion for women and women in the arts. And then all this stuff comes out about the mess of misconduct and harassment and cover-up. And again, I just go, why are we not more shocked? And I I think it's, and I'm not judging, because I think we all can make mistakes, but I think we're not shocked because it's all too common. We almost expect to hear these stories. But there are, There are stories in the same way that we cherish, stories that bring us hope. They're stories of unexpected heroes. They're stories like this guy named Eric Little. And Eric Little was uh, a runner, and in 1924, he was at the Paris Olympics, and it was Sunday, July 5th. Paris Track and Field Stadium had filled their stadium with 60,000 people in 1924. That's pretty huge. And they were coming to watch the preliminary and quarterfinal heats of the 100-meter dash. And the world had been talking for months about the heavily favored sprinter from Great Britain named Eric Little. Except he wasn't in any of the heats. He was actually preaching at a church in downtown Paris. He gave up running in the 100-meter dash, which was almost certain victory because as a believer in Christ, this 22-year-old college student maintained the conviction that Sunday was the Christian Sabbath, this day of rest. So even though he felt God's pleasure when he ran, he said, I can't run. As soon as the race uh, schedule came out, he informed Britain's Olympic Committee that he would not be running in the race, met with them, and received thousands of criticisms. And as the race got closer, the criticism just increased, including the Prince of Wales personally urging him to move this conviction, to just run this race. No one from Great Britain, actually no Scottish person, he was Scottish, has ever meddled in this race, and he resolutely refused. Instead, because it was months before, he shifted his focus on training for the 400-meter dash. Well, if you're a 100-yard sprinter, going to the 400-meter dash is like asking someone who's run one mile to just go and run 12. I mean, it is unbelievably different. And he was seated first in the 100. He ended up getting third in the 200. Nobody really expected much from him in the 400. But the preliminaries were Wednesday and Thursday for the finals. He was seated in eighth place, and so he's in the farthest most outside lane, which means he has to travel the longest, which means he is placed and set up 
the furthest ahead of anyone. So he has to run the first 200 meters blind. Because he knows coming around the back, that's when people will catch him. And so since he's a sprinter, he just runs as hard as he can for the 200. Almost sets a record in his 200. And then just keeps going because no one has caught him. And he's not sure where they are. And as he comes around the last bend and comes down the last 100 yards, the Americans are closing in on him. And he gets this burst of speed and accelerates. And in his signature running style, his head's back, his arms are flailing. He crosses the finish line with this five-meter lead. The crowd erupts because not only has the first Scottish man ever won a gold medal in the Olympics, he set a world record that lasted for 12 years. Again, he gave up what seemed like certain victory with no, no promise of reward, but this conviction and love for God. That's risky. It's a little crazy. I'd call it uncommon. But it's stories like that that move us that we tell and retell. 1981 or 1982, they made a movie called The Chariots of Fire off of this story because it's a great story. When they do the Ironman triathlon in Hawaii, in Hawaii, uh, yeah, in Hawaii, they tell stories of people who've conquered things, these inspirational stories. And I love to watch those stories. It reminds me that an uncommon example can change the world. We're, we're doing this series called Uncommon for exactly that reason. We spent the month of September, a little bit into October, talking about these important, impactful choices that we can make that can change not just our daily lives, but our, our trajectory of our life. But this series is really about putting those things into practice. How do we live this uncommon life? So we're looking at these heroes from the faith, if you will, the Christian faith, in Hebrews 11, and we're going to be looking at pathways to move from common to uncommon. So, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Hebrews 11. If you don't, uh, you'll just you can listen to me, and then some of them will be on the sp- on the screen. <laughs> Hebrews 11 says, "Now faith." is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of things that we cannot see. This is what the ancients or the people of old were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed by God's command so that what is seen was not made by what is seen or visible, but what is unseen. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended or approved as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about those, the things unseen, in holy fear, built an ark 
to save his family, and by faith he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Would you pray with me? God, this is your word, and we are here to hear from you. We're here to, because we're seeking. We're here because we need healing. We might be here because we're exhausted. We're here because we're lonely. Or we're here because we're hungry. God, I pray that your word and your spirit, God, would fill us up, would give us what we truly need, would restore us with you, and would bring hope to the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this first part of of Hebrews, it, it gives three examples, three people of faith that were approved or commended by God. The first one is Abel. Abel's story is told in Genesis 4, and so I'm going to turn there. It'll be on the screen, but you can turn there if you like. Abel is the second son of the first two humans that God created in the story of Genesis. Genesis is just this word called beginnings, and Abel and Cain are brothers. Cain, by the way, means gained or acquired, and Abel means breath or vapor. So I just want you to picture that as you hear about these two people. Because in the Old Testament, names always meant just more than identifying someone. They were actually an identity and an action that they took. It was a statement about their life, not just their person. But Genesis 4 says that there were, Abel kept flocks, Genesis 4.2, and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering for the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of the flock. The Lord looked on favor on Abel's offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. So someone might say, well, why does God look on favor with Cain's, uh, on Abel's offering, but not on Cain's offering. Why does God say, oh yes, I accept your offering, Abel, but I do not accept your offering, Cain? Isn't that a fair question to ask? This is where you nod or, or you can sit. Yeah, yeah. And, and some people have said, well, it's because Cain, or it's because Abel brought an animal and there was blood for the offering. But interestingly enough, the writer doesn't say anything about blood. In the, in, in the law, there are grain offerings, fruit offering, vegetable offerings. All of these types of offerings are acceptable to God. So I don't think it has anything to do with the fact that one is a fruit and the other is an animal. So then we have to look at what the author has given us. See, Abel brought fat portions. Now, Sorry, vegetarians. Fat portions does not mean like the fat on a juicy steak, but it does talk about that, meaning the, the meat that is closest to the fat is often the tenderest. So fat portions mean the choicest or the best of the firstborn. The firstborn would again be the first of the flocks that are, that are produced. 
And Abel gave the best of the first. I would say that's risky. Because what if your other sheep are, are not very good? You've just given away the best and the first. So you have to do that before you know how the others are going to turn out. Or, or those other sheep could be good, but they get sick. And so you, you may not have enough. That's risky to give in that way. Much like the apple, I could hand this over, and then when it comes back to me, it could look like it did earlier. <laughs> just a core. See, but this is uncommon. So, so we have to look just a little further than that because the, the writer says that Abel brought an offering. But actually, in the Hebrew, there's no offering. It says, Abel brought fat portions from the firstborn. And Cain brought an offering, meaning a gift, some fruit of the soil. So this is one of these questions that's for the symphony, for all of us, because I was like, ooh, how could I, what kind of story, and now, what kind of story might you have? So, question to participate. What does it feel like to get a gift out of obligation? What does it feel like when you receive a gift because someone felt obligated to give you one? Dad, that's super vague. I appreciate it. But be, thanks for being first. That takes courage. That's awesome. I, I heard meaningless, insincere. Yeah, do you even want it? That's a good question. How do you know if it was given out of obligation? You, you know. Ever heard this one? Oh, it's nothing. I got it on sale. Or I'm not sure if it's the right size, but, you know, or the one I've tried. But, but honey, you're missing the point. It was a great deal. <laughs> Skewed. Do you even want it? See, the word brought, actually, in Hebrew and in English, kind of means the same thing. To bring means to come near to someone. If I'm bringing fat portions from the firstborn. Notice it doesn't translate the word gift. I'm bringing the first and the best because I want to come close to you. When you give out of love and when you give out of sacrifice, you are saying, I want to come close to you. I think that's why Abel's offering is accepted because it's really not about the offering. It's really about the heart that he brought. First Samuel says that God knows the heart, that people judge by external appearances, and I would say external actions, but God sees our heart. And yet, out of this heart, action should flow. Jesus says that over and over. So it's out of that demonstration that we're able to see what is happening here. So maybe the risky question is, do I honor God with uncommon giving? Offering my first and my best to come near. I think that's why Abel's sacrifice still speaks to us. See, big risky faith starts with small steps of trust. Enoch is the second person. It's in Hebrews 11. 
It says that he was taken from this life, and then he was no, then he was no more. It's, it's told in Genesis 5, verse 21 through 24. This is at a time before there was a gigantic flood, and for some reason that I'm still trying to figure out, uh, so if you know, you can talk to me afterwards, um, people lived a, a long, long time, hundreds of years. So we're going through this list in Genesis 4 and Genesis 5, and it's documenting mainly the spread of sin or the advancement of blessing. So that's key. But Enoch had lived 65 years when he became the father of Methuselah. Sad name. But, But Methuselah, when it has this la at the end, it's trying to unite that person's name with God. It's trying to say, I see something significant about you that is close to the divine. It's not saying that child is divine. It's merely trying to point out this connection with God. And it happens a few times in the stories. But when Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he had become the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. And then he was no more because God took him away. It's a super strange story. But twice in this story, it's saying, Enoch walked faithfully with God. To walk faithfully with God means you walk towards his face. If God had a face, you walk towards his presence. If God had a face, you'd see his expression. If God had a face and you walked towards his face, it means you weren't concerned with what other people were thinking or doing. And this is all happening when the spread of sin is going everywhere. So just imagine things are going really bad in the world and You are living faithful. This is what Enoch is doing. The other key is that Enoch's name means dedicated. So the dedicated one is walking towards God's face. In other words, this is what's also happening here is you have to pay attention. So I missed it a whole bunch of times. But the generations, if you count them, Enoch was the seventh child, uh, seventh grandson of Seth, which was the son that Cain, that Adam and Eve had after Abel died because his brother Cain killed him. Abel was very angry. Remember we just talked about that? Notice how it never said God was angry. But what has happened is Enoch is showing us there's a different means of life and there's a different means of death. If Enoch could live and then was no more, then there's something about dying that's different than we understand it to be. So we go back to Genesis 2, if you're still with me. I know that's kind of a jump, but Genesis 2, God says to Adam and presumably to Eve, all of the trees and the fruit of the garden you may eat, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of that tree, you will certainly, anybody know? Die. And if you know the story, Adam and Eve eat the fruit, and what happens? Louder? They didn't die. So either God's a liar, which I wouldn't say, or we don't understand death. We don't understand what it means to truly die. So if you slow down that story, Adam and Eve take the fruit, they eat it, they understand something about themselves, and they hide. 
when they hear the sound of God walking in the garden, they run away and they hide. And they say, I was afraid when I heard you, so I hid. The posture of their heart towards God has radically changed. God and Adam and Eve had, God created humankind to have this face-to-face, open, naked, and unashamed relationship, that there would be nothing in between us, that we could talk to God and each other and not have to fight in the ways that we fight. Not have to cover up, not have to feel the shame. This is how God created us, and all of a sudden, there's this twist. Now, when they hear that God is near, they run away in fear. Because the posture of their heart has changed. Notice how the posture of God's heart did not change. All throughout the story, the posture of God's heart is one who runs. One who runs and pursues us even when we turn away. That is who God's is. That is what it means to be faithful. Jesus lived this faithful, perfect life. And Enoch is just a demonstration of seventh, meaning this divine perfect number has reached, there's this one strand of faithfulness that has gone through the ages. And it's compared to the seventh son of Cain, which makes Cain's sin of murdering his brother actually look mild. His name's Lamech, it's in Genesis 4, and he is arrogant, he's got two wives, he's, he wants to take revenge on people because they insulted him. This is what God is comparing this what it means to be faithful, what it means to be separated. Enoch shows us in his risky living when evil is going everywhere what it means to be connected to God. See, to be connected to God is life. Not just for him, but for those around him. To be disconnected from God or separated is death. So maybe the risky question is, Do I care more about having things in this life or having life with God? That's what risky living is. It's uncommon to care more about having life with God than having things in this life. But Enoch trusted, and big, risky faith starts with small steps of trust. The last person in this little trio is Noah. Noah's story is told in the flood, six, Genesis 6 through 8, but Noah's story starts in Genesis 5, and it's from Enoch's son, Methuselah, when he was 187 years old, he became the father of Lamech, different Lamech. And after he had become the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Methuselah lived 969 years, and then he died. That's a long time. And when Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. Okay, here's the point to all those numbers. We had to get to the 10th generation. Because 7th is perfect, divine, but 10 is divine completeness. So all throughout scripture, those are significant numbers. The 10th son from creation is Noah. And here's what his dad says. He named him Noah 
because he said, he will comfort us in the labor and the painful toil caused by the ground that the Lord has cursed. Generation upon generation upon generation have been feeling the curse of not just working the ground and having it be painful toil, which God never intended work to be painful toil. So if you're working and you're like, this sucks. Sorry, we don't say sucks. But, you know, this sucks. It never was intended to be that. When you have those good things in you come out and are shared with others, there's a joy in that. But there's a painful toil that is also because when we hear God come near, we run away in fear. We think that God is against us. And so it's hard to give because we want to keep our security. We want to make sure that we have enough. It's hard to live faithful because we're not sure how other people are going to live. There's people like Lamech that want to go around killing people. And so it's hard to live faithfully and vulnerably with God. And then Noah. His father sees something in him that the world needs. He will comfort us in the painful toil of our labors. See, there's something about Noah that his father sees that the world needs, and this father needs to offer that up to God. We'll talk about that in two weeks, because that is pretty huge. But again, big, risky faith means small steps of faith, because people need arcs. Noah built an ark, and that meant Noah built a shelter, a protection from the chaos that would ensue. When we have people like Harvey Weinstein in the world, we need arcs. We need people to protect us from that chaos. We need people not only to protect us, but to comfort us. There are people in this room who don't know what the next step is. They need comfort. And you might be the person that God is prompting to bring that comfort, to go beyond yourself and offer that uncommon grace of God. That's what Noah did. God didn't have to do this flood. He didn't have to use those people. I mean, he created the world out of nothing. He could have just wiped it out and started over. But for some reason, we're given this story that this family... And these animals would be what God uses, and he would never again do what he did. This is compassion. This is risky. This is not just risky for Noah, but this is risky for God. There was, at the time of Noah, it said that people were eating and drinking. They were giving away in marriage and having marriage up until the rain started. There'd never been rain before. Imagine building a ship because it's going to rain, and people walk by and go, what are you doing? Oh, I'm making a, I'm, it's, it's an ark. What's that? Well, it's like a box that protects people from the chaos. What's chaos? Well, God said it was going to rain. What's rain? I mean, it's a little crazy. But there are things in each of our lives, if we just stop to go, what does this story have to do with my life? There are things in our life that are chaotic. There are things in the people around you where they're chaotic and they need protection and they need comfort. And when you see it, God might be calling you to take a risk and reach out. I call it risky serving 
So you could remember, risky giving, risky living, risky serving. That's what is uncommon about each of these examples. And yet, when they took that small step of trust, it ended up being a big, risky faith. But now, they have told stories for generations upon generations. And it may make sense how you can apply uncommon giving. It may make sense of how you can apply uncommon living. But when I thought about the story of Lamez, I thought, ooh, this tells the story of how we could apply uncommon serving. See, Victor Hugo wrote this book that became a movie that became a play called Les Miserables to make a poignant parable. There's the main character, Jean Valjean, who is a man uh, who ends up stealing, and he steals a loaf of bread and ends up in jail, in prison for 19 years. It seems a little harsh for a loaf of bread. When he gets out, he can't escape his past, both by what people think and by his own actions. So he finds himself under the care and home of someone who's uncommonly comforting, a Noah, if you will, Monsignor Benvenue, and he gives this compassion, and instead of receiving that compassion, Jean Valjean actually steals his collection of silver. And he runs away in the middle of the night, and he gets caught by the police, and so in the morning, the police bring him back. And the Monsignor's response is shocking as they put him in front of the door. Ah, here you are, the Monsignor says, to the criminal who's just taken his prized silver. Hundreds, if not thousands of dollars worth of francs. It's a French movie. Ah, here you are. I'm glad to see you, but how is this? You forgot the candlesticks. They're part of the collection. How did you not know that? They're worth at least 200 francs apiece. Here, I will go and get them. And he runs over to the mantle of the chimney, and he grabs the two silver candlesticks. And he brings them back, and he sets them on top of the bag of silver. And he says, there you go. Take them. And Jean Valjean just reaches out, grabs them, completely bewildered, almost ready to faint, not sure what to do. And the Monsignor leans in close. says, never forget, never, that this day, this day, You have promised to use this money in becoming an honest man. Now, Jean Valjean remembers no conversation like that where he promised to do this. But as he's standing there bewildered, the Monsignor continues, with this silver, I have bought your life. Now, before you think that's kind of crazy, he says, Jean Valjean, my brother, If you know the story of Paul turning into Saul, Saul turning into Paul, someone is asked to go and show him God's love, show him God's grace, be a Noah in his life. And he says, Paul, my brother. That's what he says. Jean Valjean, my brother. Not my enemy, not the guy who stole, not the the title that someone else gave you or the label that someone else did, not your past actions, you're my brother. You are no longer evil, but good. The, the money that you have taken, this, your soul, I have bought with this silver. And I take it from the spirit of hell 
and the powers, the spiritual powers of darkness and the place of hell, and I give it to God. That's what it means to be Noah in someone's life, to offer grace that they don't deserve, but we don't deserve it either because God is like the Monsignor. God is the one who comes to us or someone else. The accuser comes and brings us before God, and we have nothing to stand on because we've stolen or we've thought or we've done or we've taken. God says, here you are. What's this? You've taken this? Well, hang on. I get my son. I get my son, Jesus, who has given his life for you. It's not by your actions that you get into heaven or that you have relationship with God. It's through my grace. Some of you need to hear that it's not about your actions. God sees your heart. It's through his heart and his actions that we receive his redemption. Others do see our actions. They need us to take a risk in our giving. They need us to take a risk in our living. And they need us to take a risk in our serving. Because they're in the chaos. Would you be one who would step out? Do you pray with me? God, I thank you for these stories, God, because these are, whether the Lamez story is true or not, it tells a truth. And the story of Eric Little is real and it tells a truth. And these stories from your scripture, your story of Abel and Enoch and Noah, they tell a truth. Each were commended for their faith. Faith that wasn't boring, faith that wasn't passive, faith that was active and passionate, that was moving forward, that was risky and uncommon, God. That's the kind of faith that we want. Some of us don't know how to do that. We need examples. May we be people who can be examples, but may we first understand that you were the one who was the perfect, most uncommon example. You said narrow is the road that leads to life and few find it. But Jesus, you showed the way. You offered yourself. You brought back the possibility that we could say yes to you. And, and when we do, you give us a spirit of power, of grace, and of love. God, I pray that we would be filled with your power and your grace and your love, that, that if we haven't said yes to you, Jesus, we would understand who you are and what you've done, and we would say, I give you my life because you gave yours. I give you my sin, my wrong, and I receive your righteousness. God, by faith, I walk with you. Help me to walk faithful, seeing you, hearing you, and responding to you. In Jesus' name, amen.